is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. It's my pleasure to have a special guest, Dr. Yaron Finkelstein on EM Cases, to kick off a new EM Quick Hit series, The Best of University of Toronto EM. Dr. Finkelstein is a professor of pediatrics, pharmacology, and toxicology at the University of Toronto and a staff physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. And he's also a pediatric EM researcher and senior associate scientist in the Child Health Evaluative Science Research Institute. His latest gig is being the Canada Research Chair in Pediatric Drug Safety and Efficacy. Welcome to EM Cases, Dr. Finkelstein. Thank you, Anton. Pleasure to be here. I'm a great fan of this show. Thank you. All right. Let's start off with a case. Hit us with a case. Sure. So we recently had a two-year-old who was brought in by EMS. He's a previously healthy two-year-old who was found at the morning semi-unconscious, basically very difficult to arouse in bed. Uh, parents called EMS. EMS came, took his vitals, checked his glucose, and brought him in. Very drowsy and uh, difficult to arouse. His GCS was bouncing between 5 and 8. His vital signs were stable. We did a quick glucose check that was normal. And that's what we had a kid who is very altered mental status. All right. So bouncing around GCS, altered kid, two years old, normal vitals. The differential here is enormous. It can be anything from meningitis, encephalitis, non-accidental trauma, an ingestion, a brain tumor, the list goes on and on. But I think we need some more information. Tell us some more. Absolutely. So um, with that, we completed the physical examination that was normal, and we tried to grab more history. Um, At the time, we were not given any additional history, and we started to do some testings. This child underwent a CT scan of the brain that was normal, a lumbar puncture, which was normal, and the possibility of ingestion came up. There was concern about potential exposure to opioids, and the child was given a few doses of Narcan with very partial and very short-lived effect, and the child was admitted to the intensive care unit. Shortly after, we received test results that revealed the diagnosis. All right, let me guess. It was the serum rhubarb that came back that was positive. <laughs> no, no, it was the uh, urine toxicology for cannabinoids. And that started a whole new discussion with the parents that then disclosed that um, just before the kid was put to sleep, in the evening they took him out to the park and they saw him eating a cookie from the ground. Let's talk a little bit more about pediatric cannabis poisonings. You know, whether you're against legalization of cannabis or for it, in Canada, the horse is well out of the gate. In Toronto, home of EMC Studios, if you go downtown, there's a cannabis store on every few blocks of just about every main street. So it's no surprise that there's been a huge increase in cannabis poisonings since legalization of cannabis in Canada. In fact, there's been a nine-fold increase in pediatric ED visits for cannabis ingestion after legalization, along with a marked increase in hospitalizations. So Dr. Finkelstein, besides the legalization of cannabis in Canada and some of the states in the U.S., why has there been such a huge increase in pediatric cannabis poisonings? Yeah, so that's a very interesting point. In pediatric toxicology, we see two peaks of poisonings. One is typically in the toddler age when kids may just uh, browse in the house and put in their mouth whatever they find. So it can be laundry pods, it can be bleach. And obviously, if they see something that looks highly palatable, like cannabis edibles, that usually comes in gummies, chocolates, brownies, they will be even more tempted. It's highly palatable, visually attractive, and kids may consume large amounts of that. There's also the older age group of teenagers 
who may be now more prone to those intoxications because there's much more acceptability of cannabis in the in the uh, in the environment so that that's another age group but definitely once the cannabis is accessible in the house there's going to be way more poisonings yeah i mean if i was a 2 year old and i saw some pink and orange and gummy that was just lying there i would probably go for it and then probably regret it a little bit later <laughs> absolutely and that's what we're seeing and the the important point with young children is that the effect is delayed the effect of the thc because it needs to be absorbed from the gastrointestinal system into the blood into the brain that usually takes between 30 to 60 minutes and by that time a child will continue to consume until they crash. It's a very different experience than smoking weed or joint, where after a couple of minutes, you start to feel the buzz. A two-year-old who's going to consume edibles may not feel anything until much later. By that time, they may be consuming large amounts that will cause quite severe toxicities that we've seen. Yeah, so the pharmacokinetics will end up dictating the presentation and the management quite a bit, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I want to ask you about why this is a challenging diagnosis. So one of the reasons, as you just explained, is because there's a delay in the onset of symptoms. What are, what are some of the other reasons why we miss this diagnosis often? I mean, you'd think that in many cases, you'd know that they ingested something, but obviously that is not the case. So what's yeah. going on there? So th there's a couple reasons for that. From, from a social perspective, as we mentioned before, and the caregivers or the parents may not always disclose. They may not even know or, or, or think about that if, if it's something that was um, outside of the house. But even if they're aware of that, not always they may disclose it because there may be legal implications when something like that happens, we are obliged by the law to notify the Child Protective Services about such exposures, and, and it can become very uncomfortable. The other reason is that the clinical picture is not pathognomonic or not very typical. Um, unlike there's no cannabis toxidrome, for example. The child may be limp, may have gait issues, but if the toxicity is more severe, they may present with breathing difficulties, apneas, seizures, up to a coma. And that can mimic, as you mentioned at the beginning, many other conditions that may be inflammatory, may be traumatic, may be infectious. There's no specific picture for cannabis poisoning, and there's no antidote to try reverse it. So I think you've hit on one of the key points here is that, you know, I work in a big community hospital where we see lots of adults coming in with cannabis poisoning, and there's almost always a history of cannabis poisoning. They say that they took it, so the diagnosis isn't, isn't difficult, and it's almost always a benign course. You know, they usually just sit in the emergency department for a few hours, a little TLC. If they're a bit agitated, maybe some benzos, then some good counseling before they go home, and, and that's about it, and we don't really worry about them too much. But from what you just said, I mean, we're talking apnea, intubation, some real serious complications. Could you just go through for us, you alluded to this, the, the clinical spectrum, they present in many different ways, but in terms of the really sick kids, what, what can we expect in terms of kids getting very sick with cannabis poisoning? I mean, just the fact that we should be aware that they can get very sick, I think is a, is a key yeah. point here. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's a wide spectrum, as you mentioned. It, it starts usually with some sleepiness, drowsiness, gait, disturbance issues. But those who are sicker, as I mentioned, may come in with seizures. Some came in with coma, with Glasgow coma scale of three or four. We had kids who developed hypothermia. We had kids that needed intubation, mechanical ventilation. As mentioned, many times, if we don't have the history, they would undergo painful and, and procedure, radiation, etc. And we still don't know what can be long-term outcomes of those kids. It's interesting that they get seizures and hypothermia are some of the complications. Does anyone know what the pathophysiology is there? I've never heard in the past that cannabis can lower your seizure threshold. 
Is there any thoughts about the pathophys? The pathophysiology may involve many receptors in the brain once the, the doses are, are so high. But the exact mechanism is not elucidated, but it's a picture that we clinically see. Okay, so suffice to say, decreased level of awareness, low GCS, seizures, hypothermia, apnea, these are the kinds of things that we need to look out for. And that, of course, they can mimic a whole slew of other causes of, of altered level of awareness. So if, if you can't clinch the diagnosis from the history, then unfortunately, many of these children do require CTs and LPs, etc. Let's talk about management of pediatric cannabis poisoning. We know that there's no specific antidote for cannabis and the treatment is supportive. Can you run through for us sort of the typical treatment of these kids? Again, there's many that we'll see that don't require much except just to hang out in the emergency department for a few hours until they settle. But I'm talking about the sort of the sicker ones. What, what kind of treatment do they usually require? Yeah, so the treatment will be tailored to the condition of the child. Most of them will require IV insertion, fluid management, because they won't be able to consume and get their, um, their intake need to monitor their electrolytes and temperature. So beyond that, it's really tailored to the effect. If the child is seizing, they will need benzodiazepines or something to stop the seizures. If they're really depressed in terms of their GCS and breathing, then we may need to intubate them. And we had children like that who were intubated until they get the uh, cannabis out of their system. Okay, so it's your your general approach to the altered patient. A, B, C, D, don't ever forget the glucose is the first thing. Uh, airway uh, in kids is, is going to be paramount. All right, what about um, GI decontamination? Is there any role for charcoal or whole bowel irrigation or any of that? So t- typically we suggest that activated charcoal will be given in the first hour or 30 minutes after ingestion kids usually arrive when they're already sick, the drug is already in the system, in the brain. So there's probably no role for that, especially if they may be seizing. The cases I've been involved, um, the kids were brought in too late for GID contamination. I see. Okay. So one is, as we were saying, that there's a delay of symptoms usually, and so it's too late for charcoal to do anything. Correct. And I suppose the other the other risk is aspiration because if many of these kids are decreased LOA and their and their LOA is fluctuating, you don't know what direction it's going to go in. That there's a significant risk of aspiration with charcoal, and so I've been burned by that before. By the way, that's a it's a tough one to know whether to give charcoal or not, and the timing, and whether to intubate first and then give the charcoal. Uh, even you know in adults and any patient, that's that's often a, a difficult decision to make. But suffice to say, in cannabis poisoning it's going to be rarely, if ever, yeah. that you're going to be giving charcoal. Yeah, maybe if a child was, you know, eating the cannabis in front of your eyes, uh, that, that will make sense. But uh, when they come in already clinically sick, it's too late after the ingestion. Got it. Just before we go, just one last question about sort of from a public health perspective, because ultimately the way we're going to prevent ICU admissions for cannabis poisoning in children is probably from a public health perspective. So how do you think from a public health perspective that we can decrease the incidence of pediatric cannabis poisonings? First of all, Health Canada is looking into that right now, and there's different ways to legalize cannabis, recreational cannabis. Um, Even in Canada, there's been differences. In uh, October 2018, it was legalized at the leaf form, the flower, the oils. And about a year after cannabis edibles were legalized, but not in all provinces. So in provinces like Ontario, Alberta, BC, where edibles were legalized, the numbers of hospitalizations of children for poisoning were dramatically increased. However, Quebec decided to not legalize edibles at the time. They were concerned about their palatability and attractiveness to children, and we didn't see a similar increase. So there's definitely ways where the regulator can affect the the rate of those poisonings, maybe making sure that the highest amount that's allowed within within a pack is at the level that it's now. By the way, in Canada, it's 10 milligrams of THC compared to the U.S. where most states allow 
100 milligram, which is tenfold higher dose. So there's definitely room for the regulator and legislature to uh, monitor and control some of those laws. There's also another point that I want to mention that's important for parents and for us as educators, and that is to still remember to treat cannabis as something that can cause severe poisoning in children with severe outcomes. Be aware of that. Don't believe that it's just the buzz that it can create. And with that in mind, safely store it just like you should do with any other medications. Okay. So treat them as any other medication and have them locked up in a medicine cabinet. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much for your insights into the really fascinating topic of pediatric cannabis poisonings. It was a pleasure having you on EM Cases, and we hope to have you again sometime. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Always happy to come back. Thank you, Anton. Several thousand of your fellow EM Cases listeners have a free subscription to our EM Cases Quiz Vault. Almost all the Clinical Main episode podcasts have about a dozen or so quiz questions in the Foam Vault. You can customize quizzes by category, so if you want all cardiology-related episode quizzes, you can choose that, or you can choose by episode, and you can choose as many quiz questions as you want. The other place you can find quizzes and an excellent way to solidify your knowledge with space repetition is at the bottom of the blog post of whatever main episode podcast, and there you'll see a red button to take you to the quiz for that particular episode. So try listening to the podcast, then reading the blog post, then taking the quiz. It'll be a sure way to solidify your knowledge. Just about every other quiz system in emergency medicine costs hundreds of dollars a year. This one is for free. So to get your free subscription, just click on the Quiz Vault button on the navigation bar on the EM Cases website. All right, next up, we have Britt Long on a diagnosis that we don't see too often but that needs to be in your differential diagnosis of every sick patient with chest pain. It's one of the big five chest pain killers. I bet you see a patient with chest pain or abdominal pain at least once or twice a shift. I'm always thinking about ACS, pulmonary embolism, or dissection in that patient with chest pain. These are bread and butter emergency medicine. But there are a couple other conditions that are rare and extremely dangerous if we don't pick them up in the ED. Esophageal perforation is one of these conditions. This is a full thickness tear of the mucosal and muscular layers of the esophagus from some sudden increase in intraesophageal pressure. Once that perforation occurs, you have extravasation of gastric contents and bacteria into the mediastinum. This causes mediastinitis and a systemic infection with a very high mortality rate. The most common thing we think about when it comes to esophageal perforation is Boerhaave syndrome. This is a sudden rupture of the esophagus that's marked by that classic triad, vomiting, followed by chest pain, and then subcutaneous emphysema. Boerhaave syndrome only accounts for 15% of cases, though, and the triad is present in less than 50%. Nausea and vomiting are also present in less than half of cases. Instead of relying on this triad, you have to look for other risk factors prior esophageal pathology, endoscopic procedures, and any situation where you have increased intraesophageal pressure, not just vomiting. Think about childbirth, seizures, prolonged coughing and laughing, even extreme exertion. Pain is the most common presenting symptom, but it may not be chest pain. It honestly depends on where the perforation occurred. If you have a patient with cervical perforation, they may have pain in the neck. A distal site esophageal perforation may present with leakage into the abdominal cavity, causing peritonitis. Systemic symptoms can occur, but they may be delayed by a couple days. Fever is only present in 40-50% to of cases. We also learn about subcutaneous emphysema in the neck or chest. This does suggest the disease, but it's present in less than 60% of patients and often isn't present immediately following the perforation. Hammond's crunch is that crunching sound over the precordium that occurs with each heartbeat, That might occur from mediastinal emphysema, but this doesn't occur in all cases. You might have some abnormal breath sounds on the left side. This can be due to a pleural fusion or even a pneumothorax. Labs just aren't going to be much help here. You need imaging for diagnosis. 
Thankfully, a chest x-ray is abnormal in about 90% of cases. You might see pneumomediastinum or subcutaneous emphysema. In later cases, you might see a pleural effusion and pneumothorax or even mediastinal air levels. Bedside ultrasound can be helpful here. You might find pneumothorax, a pleural effusion, subcutaneous emphysema, and if you're having difficulties visualizing the heart on your ultrasound, this means that they might have air within the mediastinum that's surrounding the heart. The definitive imaging is going to be a CT chest with IV contrast or a CT esophagography. CT chest with IV contrast is probably going to be the most readily available, and it has high sensitivity. It can help you look for alternative diagnoses, evaluate for involvement of surrounding structures, and help guide management. And that brings us to treatment. Your first step is to provide resuscitation and broad-spectrum IV antibiotics, something like perpicillin, tazobactam plus vancomycin, or meropenem plus vancomycin. Second, manage symptoms with antiemetics and analgesics. Next, administer a PPI, make the patient NPO, and most importantly, get your specialist on board early. This will include thoracic surgery, gastroenterology, interventional radiology, and then also critical care. The reason why you need so many specialists is that these patients are sick and there are several options available for definitive therapy. Primary repair with washout is used for large perforations, those with overwhelming mediastinal infections, or those patients who have a significant amount of infectious material located within their chest or abdomen. If the patient needs surgery but there's going to be a delay and that patient has a large amount of GI material within their chest, then think about placing a chest tube. Patients may be appropriate for a hybrid approach if they don't need immediate surgical intervention. This is minimally invasive, but it depends on the location of the perforation, the underlying pathologies, and then also the clinical status of the patient. An example of this is that GI would place a stent across the perforation, and then IR would drain any fluid collections. The third one is non-operative management. This is a little bit less common, and I would leave this to your specialists. Another important consideration for management is the airway. Many of these patients are going to need airway intervention, especially if they're hemodynamically unstable or in respiratory distress. You do need to be careful with non-invasive ventilation. This can potentially increase transluminal pressures within the esophagus, and that can worsen the tear. Non-invasive ventilation can also increase subcutaneous air, which can make it even more difficult in establishing a definitive airway. If they're toxic or in respiratory distress, then early intubation is probably your best bet. Finally, we need to talk a little bit about placing an NG tube. This is going to be an important part of the patient's management, but it's probably best left to your specialist like the thoracic surgeon or the GI specialist. In summary, esophageal perforation is a potentially deadly condition that we have to diagnose in the ED. Don't rely on that classic triad of vomiting followed by chest pain and subcutaneous emphysema. Instead, look for risk factors in that patient with neck pain, chest pain, or abdominal pain. Diagnosis includes CT chest with IV contrast and management focuses on IV antibiotics and get your specialist on board early. Excellent, succinct review on a topic that I personally haven't reviewed in years. Thank you so much, Dr. Long. Next up is ECG Cases himself, Jesse McLaren. Now, most of us know how to identify a Brugada pattern on ECG, and we talked about Brugada a bit on our recent syncope episode. But Brugada is so important in that it's a preventable cause of sudden cardiac death that it's worth delving into Brugada more thinking about it and letting it sink in so that we can be sure to pick it up on ECG and save a life. Take it away, Dr. McLaren. It's a busy day in the ED and you're shown an ECG from a patient in triage. You notice that leads V1 and V2 have an RSR prime pattern followed by saddleback ST elevation. So you ask yourself, could this be Brugada? Brugada syndrome is caused by a right ventricular sodium channelopathy that is temperature sensitive. This produces a distinctive ECG pattern in the right ventricular leads, V1 and V2, made worse by fever or sodium channel blockade. Brugada syndrome can lead to syncope or sudden cardiac death, but can be prevented by an ICD, so making the diagnosis can save a life. But seeing the pattern on ECG is not the same as diagnosing the syndrome in a patient. The question, is this Brugada, is actually a series of three questions. 
First, does the ECG have a Brigada pattern? You can't rely on computer interpretation because it can miss these patterns or mislabel them as STEMI, but you can identify them using your own ECG interpretation. There are two patterns to look for in the right ventricular leads V1 and V2. Type 1 is an RS complex followed by a coved ST elevation that descends into an inverted and symmetric T wave. Type 2 is an RSR prime complex with saddleback ST elevation and a positive T wave. So as long as you're not driving, pause the podcast, go to this EM Quick Hits show notes, and look at the Brugada patterns. Again, type 1 is all about ST elevation with a descending ST segment and inverted symmetric T wave. And type 2 is all about the so-called saddleback ST elevation, which is way more subtle than type 1, in my opinion. Type 1 is specific for Brugada pattern, but type 2 can also be seen with lead misplacement, or normal variants. Lead misplacement is much more common than Brigada syndrome and can easily be identified by looking at the P wave, which is normally biphasic in V1 and fully upright in V2. If the P wave is fully negative in V1 or not fully upright in V2, then the leads are too high, which can produce an RSR prime pattern with saddleback S elevation, which resolves with correct lead placement. If the P waves are normal, the next step involves drawing a triangle whose peak is the R prime and whose base is five millimeters below. If the triangle base is wide at greater than four millimeters, this identifies type two brigada. And if the triangle base is narrow, it is a normal variant. If the ECG has a brigada pattern, the second question is, does the patient have a brigada phenocopy? These are reversible conditions unrelated to fever or sodium channel blockade that can mimic Brugada pattern but resolve with treatment in a patient without symptoms of Brugada syndrome. This includes metabolic conditions that alter conduction like hyperkalemia, mechanical compression of the right ventricle like tension in thorax, or ischemia in the V1 to V3 distribution like from a PE or an anterior wall MI. For example, if the patient presents with weakness after missing dialysis, and they have Brigada pattern in addition to wide QRS and peak T waves, then they have a Brigada phenocopy induced by hyperkalemia, and they need immediate calcium, not an ICD. The ECG has a Brigada pattern, and the patient does not have a Brigada phenocopy. Then the third question is, do they have symptoms of Brigada syndrome? The diagnosis of Brigada syndrome requires a type 1 pattern, or type 2 that converts to type 1 with sodium channel blockade. Management depends on symptoms, including syncope, nocturnal agonal breathing, or resuscitated rest. Patients presenting with these symptoms require an ICD, while those incidentally found to have Brigada syndrome can be referred to an electrocardiologist, and all patients should treat fevers and avoid sodium channel blockers. So back to that ECG you were given on the patient in triage, with saddleback ST elevation and V1 to V2. You can ask yourself three questions. One. Is there a Brigada pattern on ECG, or is it simple lead misplacement with negative P waves, or a normal variant with a narrow triangle base? Two, if there is a Brigada pattern on ECG, does the patient have any reversible causes of Brigada phenocopy that need to be immediately treated, like hyperkalemia or ischemia? And three, if there's a Brigada pattern, but no Brigada phenocopy, then does the patient have symptomatic Brigada syndrome requiring ICD? Or do they just need referral to an electrocardiologist? With these three questions, you can identify Brigada pattern, treat reversible causes, and ensure safe follow-up. For multiple examples of Brigada pattern, phenocopy, and syndrome, see the recent ECG case blog on EM cases and help prevent sudden cardiac death. A word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. 
I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. Love the three-step approach to Brugada. It's not just about the patterns. You got to rule out lead misplacement and normal variant, then think about the phenotype and then the clinical syndrome to see what fits. All right, next up, we have Tahara Bate, our host of QI Corner. Now, I won't give this one away. All right, and welcome back, everyone. On today's QI Corner, we're going to mix it up a bit. Fear not, we still have a great case for you, but this time, it's about a fantastic save. Our setting today is an urban emergency department on a typical Wednesday evening. Typical in that when you show up for your 7 p.m. shift, not only are you completely bed blocked, but four of your beds are closed because there isn't enough staff. And the EMS crews waiting to offload are in this nice long line, stretching the entire length of the hallway. You're just getting started when you're interrupted by the triage nurse. An EMS crew has just arrived with a patient that she's assessing as a GCS-3 and is asking you to see urgently. You do not have a single free space in the entire department, so you head out into triage to see this patient. The patient is an 80-year-old Korean-speaking male coming in from home accompanied by his daughter. The brief handover you get from the crew as you don your PPE is that there's five days of increased confusion and some GI symptoms, as well as some dementia at baseline. It's mildly tachypnic on arrival, with a respiratory rate of 22 to 24, but has been otherwise normotensive and normal heart rate. The crew reports that he was moving all four limbs during initial assessment and transfer, and he appeared delirious. But the triage nurse has been having trouble getting a response to sternal rub when she was registering them. On assessment, this patient's protecting their airway, with oxygen saturations 96% on room air, Repeat vitals are as reported, a heart rate of 80 and a BP of 130 on 75. On response to sternal rub, the patient localizes with his left arm and mumbles, but doesn't open his eyes. Pupils are 3 millimeters and reactive. You start testing extremity response to pain, and as you check his right arm, the patient arouses enough to complain loudly in Korean, and you witness him moving all four limbs spontaneously. Relieved that you're not in imminent need of either your airway cart or a stat head scan, you take a breath and continue your history and physical. The daughter, who speaks limited English, confirms what EMS told you, that this patient has been feeling unwell for the last few days. With some decreased PO intake in the context of nausea, couple episodes of emesis, and a few episodes of diarrhea. Despite the GI symptoms, the daughter states there's no real complaint of abdominal pain. There's no history of fever no complaints of respiratory symptoms, and no chest pain. Patient is COVID vaccinated, and there's no sick contacts. There's no history of a headache, and on a crude neurological review of systems, there's no classic stroke symptoms. There's also no acute change or new symptoms today. The EMS call had in fact been precipitated by the daughter not being able to get her father out of bed by herself. Past medical history is significant for hypertension, dyslipidemia, and type 2 diabetes and the daughter says, no insulin. The diabetes history prompts you to double-check the glucose, which you didn't hear in handover, but thankfully was normal. The physical exam reveals a clear chest with mild tachypnea and no associated increased work of breathing. His cardiac exam is unremarkable, and he looks dry, although his extremities reveal good perfusion and no modeling, concordant with his blood pressure. His abdomen's benign, and you also note that there's no history of head trauma. Throughout your exam, his mental status is highly variable, at times moving spontaneously and mumbling, and at other times appearing with a very depressed LOC, responsive only to sternal rub. You ask the patient's daughter about his baseline, and it seems his baseline is confusion, but it's difficult to ascertain any further information given the language barrier. Overall, given an unimpressive clinical exam and stable vitals, Your clinical gestalt is that this patient is altered secondary to delirium, probably infectious given his GI symptoms, rather than an acute intracranial process. You order fluids, septic workup including UA and a COVID test, as well as a CT head. Given the department stresses, you're trying to limit back and forth, and you also add a gas, osmolality, and ketones up front given this patient's history of diabetes. 
Before you head back inside the department, you update the triage nurse regarding the orders and plan for the patient, and then you move on to your next chart. Fast forward three hours. You notice that there's no blood work back for this patient. And when you check with the triage nurses, they tell you that the volume of incoming patients has been so high that they've been unable to step away to draw labs. However, a bed inside has just become available, so your patient's been sent for CT and is going to be heading inside shortly. Another hour passes. Total time now four hours since registration. You get handed a critical result by your unit clerk, and it shows a venous blood gas for this patient with a pH of 6.9. Nothing else is available. You head for the bedside at, shall we say, a brisk walk, and quickly reassess the patient who's just returned from CT. They appear more obtunded, and they're barely responding to sternal rub, but they are still protecting their airway with normal saturations. Their respiratory rate's still in the low 20s, but they're now tachycardic and hypotensive, with a heart rate of 120 and a blood pressure 80s on 60s. The rest of the exam is unchanged. Bedside nurse also lets you know that the fluids you ordered four hours ago have not been given, as the patient's a difficult poke and consequently does not have any IV access. As you call a second nurse to the bedside to assist, the rest of the gas comes back. Your bicarb is undetectable, your PCO2 slightly elevated. Lactate's 3.8, glucose 14, and electrolytes grossly normal. Attempt number three at an IV has been unsuccessful, and you make the decision to place a central line for access. You subsequently start resuscitation with fluids as well as bicarb. And no, this is not going to be where we rehash the bicarb debate. Most of the results are back by the time you finish lining. The CBC is normal except for a mild leukocytosis. Creat's elevated at 200. Your LFTs are grossly normal, including a normal lipase. Your troponin's 10 on a high-sensitivity assay. You had added serum levels for alcohol, ASA, and Tylenol when you saw the metabolic acidosis, but those, of course, aren't back yet. Your ketones, however, are positive. You double-check this patient's med list and note that they're on both metformin and empagliflozin for diabetes. You realize this patient is in euglycemic DKA, and you add insulin to your treatment. Your patient's GCS subsequently improves considerably over the next hour, with a corresponding increase in his respiratory rate as he gains back the ability to blow off his CO2. He's transferred to ICU, and when you follow up on him a few days later, he's back to baseline and has been transferred to the floor, ultimately discharged. Final workup revealed no obvious etiology for the DKA except a suspected viral-slash-GI illness. Overall, this is a great save. You, me, any of us, we should feel pretty good about this one. Because at the end of the day, we made a diagnosis that saved this guy's life. And that's a good story. So why did I pick this case to share with you? First off, it's a pretty interesting example of a wildly discordant presentation where the clinical assessment did not match this patient's biochemistry or underlying disease process. And that gives us two main clinical takeaways. The first is to respect the altered elderly patient. Remember that hemodynamics may not always reflect the true clinical picture in these elderly patients, even if they're not on any confounding cardiac meds. And be sure to cast that diagnostic net wide, in case this isn't just a simple case of a UTI or hyponatremia. Our second clinical takeaway is to consider updating your approach to metabolic acidosis to reflect the current realities of your practice. Now, there may have been some diagnostic uncertainty for many of us when we first saw that pH, especially with a normal glucose and benign abdomen, because our type 1 heuristics would likely have been challenged by that discordant data, as the more common etiologies that we think of, like DKA, ischemic bowel, sepsis, they didn't seem to fit that picture. And in cases like this, having a relevant approach to metabolic acidosis is key. And I highly recommend Goldmark, which is an approach that's conveniently reviewed in great detail in EM Cases Best Case Ever number 168. I think she meant Best Case Ever number 56 and on metabolic acidosis. I would add, however, to always double check for SGL2 inhibitors and a euglycemic DKA in any diabetic you find with an unexpected metabolic acidosis. But let's take a step back. We had a good outcome, sure. But if that four-hour delay had turned into five or six, 
maybe even seven, it's not inconceivable that as they started to deteriorate, they could have had an arrest in the hallway. Now, to put that into the language of patient safety, we would most appropriately refer to this as a, quote, near-miss event. Something that's defined as an event where there's a threat to patient safety, but through timely intervention or sheer luck, no harm came to the patient. The value that can be gained by analyzing these near-miss events is immense, especially when you consider that many incidents of harm are preceded by near-miss events. So let's apply our favorite framework here and break this down by provider, patient, and system factors. As a provider, you very appropriately got a reasonable workup going, and you even took the extra step to close the loop with your triage nurse. But did you communicate a sense of urgency to your team around prioritizing this patient's care? Or were you reassured by stable vitals in a patient with acute delirium on what you were told was a baseline of dementia? Now, would that reassurance still have been there if you knew that this patient's baseline was actually full independence with an active social life and a recent return home from a trip to Korea? Turns out this dementia diagnosis was actually just a very mild cognitive impairment with some mild short-term memory loss. And that brings me to our next takeaway. Whenever possible, use appropriate translation resources. It may take extra time, for sure, but your management of a case may turn on that extra collateral. And that brings us to our systems factors, which are many. And look, there's no way to sugarcoat it. Our departments, at least in Canada, were having a rough time. And hallway medicine, staff shortages, and bed blocks, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. So avoiding quixotic attempts to quote-unquote fix things, what are some real-world takeaways that we can consider right now to mitigate potential harms in cases like this? A thorough analysis of ED overcrowding, or what's more appropriately referred to as access block, is beyond our scope here, and I'd refer you to an excellent EM Cases episode from 2019 with Howard Ovens, Grant Innes, and Sam Campbell, where they present root causes and solutions to the issue of access block. Now, many of our current causes of access block are outside our direct control, I'll admit. But there's still some things within our scope which are actionable. For example, think about working within your department to assess where the delays are occurring to see if you can identify the so-called bottleneck resource. Now, this doesn't have to be some sort of elaborate QI analysis. Even just getting some of your department staff in a room and talking through where your bottlenecks are is a really good place to start. It may be, for example, that time to initial assessment is too long, in which case, maybe a physician at triage model makes sense for your department. In this case, however, the delay wasn't in clinician assessment. It was in getting the labs drawn. Recognizing that, this hospital elected to place a lab tech in triage during peak hours, specifically to carry out orders on hallway patients, EMS patients, and those with nurse-initiated orders. Now, the other systems factor, which may not have been obvious when I went through the case, is who is watching these patients? When this whole event was reviewed, it was noted that there were no vitals done for the hours that this patient was outside. So the deterioration in hemodynamics was never caught. Now, having extra nursing staff to monitor these patients would be the safest intervention, but for most of us, that's not going to be possible. So what you can consider instead is doing a quick round of the hallway, or EMS patients, once or twice per shift, especially if you're on a single coverage and therefore responsible for the whole department, either in a smaller center or overnight. If you do, it's not uncommon to pick up patients like this, who have deteriorated while waiting for an assessment or bed. Now, none of this is ideal, but leaving that aside and bringing it back to things we can actually act on, what are our takeaways from this case? Number one is to respect the altered elderly patient. Not all delirium is a UTI, and there's a significant chance that their clinical presentation is not concordant with their true acuity. Takeaway number two is check out the Goldmark approach to metabolic acidosis. And remember to consider euglycemic DKA in patients on SGL2 inhibitors. And finally, number three, take the time for that translation, especially with elderly patients. Collateral is key, 
especially in establishing that critical understanding of the patient's baseline. From a systems point of view, while the powers that be are hopefully working on some real solutions, think about what we can control in our departments right now to mitigate patient harm. Think about looking at your department flow, especially around patients who aren't in monitored spaces, and see if there's anything at all you can put in place to support timely and appropriate care while they wait for beds. And consider rounding on these patients every few hours, especially at night, to catch clinical deterioration early. This was a big save, but it could also have been a very big miss. And it's these cases that offer the greatest opportunity for improvement. So until next time, keep thinking about that system and remember, a merge is a team sport and a miss or even a save is never on you alone. Thanks so much, Dr. Bate. Euglycemic DKA needs to be sort of tacked onto that gold mark because it's easy to miss when that glucose is normal. Okay, last but not least, we have another highlight from Cape 22 in Quebec City with none other than Connie LeBlanc. She's a veteran ED doc, and she's going to give us some practical thinking around transitions in emergency medicine, transitions into practice, out of practice, non-clinical work, etc., But before we do, just a reminder that tickets for the EM Cases Summit go on sale November 2nd at 10 a.m. EST at emcasesummit.com. And exciting news, for the first time ever, we're offering virtual simulation sessions in Sarah Fui's virtual recess room. Now, if you haven't heard of this, it is amazing. Dr. Fui and a few expert simulation debriefers run you through cases just like an in-person simulation where you work in teams. If you don't have easy access to in-person simulation, this is your chance to participate in simulation from the comfort of your home. Space is limited, so grab your tickets to the EM Cases Summit on November 2nd before they sell out, which I'm quite sure they will. Okay, here's Connie LeBlanc on transitions in EM from Quebec City, Cape 22. Whether you're just beginning your career in EM or contemplating the end of it, you need a plan for the future in order to keep current, maintain competence, stay well, keep being engaged, and enjoy your career in EM. Your career is going to be filled with transitions, and that's what this podcast is going to be about. I can't think of anyone better to discuss the ins and outs of these keys to maintaining a successful career in EM than a veteran EM doc, Connie LeBlanc, Professor of EM in Halifax, who served as the Associate Dean for Continuing Professional Development and Medical Education Research at Dalhousie University. Welcome to EM Cases, Dr. LeBlanc. Not having you on EM Cases all these years is probably the oversight of the decade. (laughs) Thanks very much, Anton. I think you might have just called me old. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate having been invited. Well, you don't look a day older than I do, so... That means you're young. (laughs) All right. I'd like to discuss four aspects of maintaining a kick-ass career over decades in EM. Maintaining competence, even if you decrease your clinical load near retirement, for example. Wellness and transitions. Saying yes, no, or maybe to people asking you to do stuff. And strategies for work transitions. But before we dig into these aspects of maintaining a kick-ass career in EM, I'm curious to know what you think about how long an EM doc should work in emergency medicine. You know, historically, EM is a young specialty with EM docs transitioning out of their clinical eMERGE work at younger at a younger age than other specialties. With night shifts and high-pressure environment and such, it's probably not great for you or your health to practice, you know, into your 70s. How long should EM docs be grinding it out in the ED, doing shifts, late night, et cetera? Well, that's a great question, and I think it's different for each eMERGE doc. So I, when I started to practice, most physicians who'd practiced emergency medicine didn't have any intention of being career eMERGE docs and had no specific training. And so those docs, of course, intended to do emergency medicine to explore different disciplines and then pursue a different specialty. So the attrition rate of those docs gave, like the the rate at which they quit Emerge gave Emerge the reputation of being a live fast, die young specialty. And the average age of Emerge docs was my age until four years ago when I 
took the lead, as it were. And so Emerge Docs, when you plan your career to be a career emergency physician with training and you're prepared and that's what you've selected, it's a little bit of a different sport. So the myth that we're more burned out than the rest of the world before COVID certainly was wrong. I think everybody's struggling since COVID. I don't think there's a great answer for working how long. I do feel that as we get older, shift work is a little more challenging and certainly things like casino nights or we have a 55 plus 15. If you're over 55 and you've worked more than 15 years, you can opt out of nights. I think those options make the longevity in emergency medicine a real possibility. Yeah. I mean, everyone's different. I agree. I have some colleagues who are hypomanic and 70 years old and continue to practice excellent emergency care and enjoy their careers. And then there's others who are going to burn out faster for a variety of reasons, which we may or may not talk about. But I do appreciate that historically, we've always thought of EM as this young specialty, but perhaps if you do a few things like casino shifts and you have these like these 55 plus rules and you do all the things that we're going to talk about in the rest of the podcast that you can certainly enjoy a long career into your 70s in emergency medicine. So there's some EM docs who slowly decrease their clinical shift load for the last 10 years of their career, let's say. Maybe they're only doing like four shifts a month for the last few years. And I've always thought that doing anything less than about eight shifts a month, it would be near impossible to keep your clinical skills up to the point where you'd feel like you're really doing a good job and actually doing a good job. How do you suggest we maintain competence while decreasing clinical load in EM? And it might be, you know, it might be that you're a researcher or you're an administrator and you're doing less and less shifts for that reason. So it could be earlier in your career as well, but whatever the reason, let's say you're decreasing your shift load. How do you maintain competence when you're only doing four or six shifts a month? So that's a great question, Anton. You know, I still do eight shifts a month. I've been practicing for 33 years. And I think what happens is if you're not present, you lose touch with the remainder of the team in a way that makes it unworkable to provide top-notch care. Because we all know that when a team is not functioning well, or when anybody in the team is uncomfortable, we can't provide high quality. So we also have a perverse idea that if you work part-time, you should decrease the percentage of rounds you need to attend and the the amount of, of attention to staff meetings and things. And I think the inverse is true. I think if you're not working eight, six or eight shifts a month at a minimum, you need to go to every staff meeting and you need to go to every rounds in order because you're not having the exposure. So you need that for your personal exposure so that you can self-critique your practice, see what's going on and be immersed in that. There are other things like I just reintegrated pediatrics into my practice. I'm still in the, at the end of that process. And that's been kind of terrifying. After 30 years of not seeing children, and now I'm down to five-year-olds because the babies are still too scary for me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> and in terms of your actual skills, like let's say you are doing four shifts a month for whatever reason, maybe health issues, who knows? How can you actually keep those skills, like that your intubation skills and procedural skills and remembering how to deal with uh, an infant who's febrile or whatever it is? How how do you suggest in terms of continuing medical education that you keep those skills up? Yeah. You know, we have a lot of modalities for extra training that are no risk to patients. So we can go to the OR and do some intubations or start some lines. Uh, we can also do simulation. Uh, when you go to rounds and it's case-based, I think that is included. In our department, when there's a critically unwell patient, say a patient, a 23-year-old who would who comes in in cardiac arrest, Every emergency physician in the department comes in and we all throw all our gray matter at that. And so you can learn from your peers that way. The other time that's really underused, I think, is handover. And people want to get out and they get defensive about it if you ask them questions. But those questions highlight areas like we do for residents where something may have been missed. And so I think the opportunity to take a few minutes and do handover effectively and question people, not in a not in a pushy, nasty way, but just in a collaborative, best care for the patient way is really helpful. 
I love that. Learning from handover. That's like a totally new concept. It's a new twist. That's great. I mean, I guess in one word, you could say curiosity, right? Just yeah. being curious and just forcing yourself to be curious. You know, Even if you feel like you're burning out from emergency medicine or you're not doing that many shifts or whatever it is, you know, just forcing yourself to be curious. I think that is kind of the basis of all of this. If you're curious when you're getting a handover, curious to learn when you're getting a handover, whether it's at rounds or whatever it is, or you, you know, get called to help out with a resuscitation, you know, debriefing that resuscitation and asking your colleagues what they thought of it. That's all opportunities to learn for sure, which really just comes down to being curious. So never lose your curiosity, I guess you could say. For sure. I think, I think that's a, a really big ticket item. All right, great. So that's a little bit about maintaining your expertise, avoiding skill decay, maintaining things like that. Let's talk about wellness. Now, that's a huge topic that we're not going to dig into too deeply. But when it comes to transitions in your career, what words of wisdom do you have for us when it comes to wellness and career transitions in particular? So, I mean, every career has a lot of transitions, some more than others. And your first transition is transition into practice. And I think being open to getting questions from our, our new staff and being mentored and buddied with people is really helpful for that transition. Stella Yu has just done a great piece of work on what are the things that new staff don't know that they needed to know prior to entering practice. And so that's going to be published in the fall. I think it's very exciting, maybe partly because I'm a mentor, but I think it's <laughs> exciting work nonetheless. Another big transition is the transition to parenthood. And so very often uh, women will come back to work and they feel like a bad mother and a bad wife and a bad doctor. And there are balls in our lives that we cannot drop. And having a new human who requires our attention all the time is one of those balls that you can't drop that. And so, you know, I think, I think we have to kind of recalibrate our expectations, sometimes work a little bit less, sometimes be kind to ourselves and understand that we are not going to have everything perfect. So you do, you're not going to have the perfect house and the perfect yard and the perfect life and the perfect date night and the perfect everything. Sometimes you have to say, you know, a couple of things are going to fall off the table here and they can't be my patients. They can't be my family. And maybe some other things have to go by the wayside. There are other difficult transitions. So transitions back from an illness or a time away because of a family member who's been sick. Those can be very difficult if we encounter that illness when we first come back. And so having working with somebody and making sure you have double coverage so that you can shift that off to another person, I think is important or get some support. Things that are really helpful in smoothing transitions is thinking about it, acknowledging that it might be difficult. Some transitions, so it's anything over about six months, you have a reorientation that I think you need before you can get back in the department. So you probably need to attend a few staff meetings and go to rounds and maybe hang out for half a shift or you kind of need to get back reimmersed. And I don't think we have enough attention to that. We always feel like we should be tough, like, oh yeah, I don't take any sick days and I don't do this and I'll just suck it up. That's not good for us and it's not good for our patients. And so we kind of have to have a more mature approach of, I might need some help with this. I'm going to ask this person I feel comfortable with if I can get that help. Transition to retirement is another thing. I think you start preparing that when you start medical school, to be honest. So maintaining a balanced life, staying fit, spending time with friends who are not in medicine, who are not in medicine, and maintaining interests outside. So not working all the time, doing some other things that are personal development that kind of feed your soul in a way that all work and no play fails to do. Excellent. Some great words of wisdom in there. I want to talk about saying yes to things and saying no to things, and then perhaps saying maybe to things. When I was early in my career, I said yes to pretty much everything that was asked of me. And I wanted to get as much experience and get exposure to as many different things that could lead me down some path of success at some point. I, I was lucky to find my passion in medical education podcasting. But I think part of the reason I found my passion was because of this early in my career saying yes to everything. And I encouraged my mentees to do the same thing. You know, keeping as many doors open as possible and finding that passion, I think, is one of the key things to having a successful career in emergency medicine. Nowadays, 
I'm much more selective in what I say yes to. What advice can you give on saying yes or no, or maybe to the variety of requests that you get through your EM career? We're merge docs, so we like everything. And that's a little bit of a disease. So we say yes to everything. And I did just like you did and said yes to everything. I think early on that's okay, but pretty quickly you need to start to be a little more selective. And it's hard for us to say no. We tend to be outgoing, people-pleasing individuals. And we know that there's a lot of important work and exciting work, and we are curious people. So we want to do it, and we want to be involved and work with our colleagues. So I think say starting to say maybe is a lot more comfortable, and it gives you time to go home and think about it. It gives you time also to talk to a mentor or a sponsor or a friend or a peer and say, is this actually something that if I say no to it, it's going to stop me dead in my tracks? Or... Is it something that I could really pass on and somebody else can do it? And those are very different situations. So sometimes you should do things that you might not like or enjoy because your group needs you to do that. And that's part of paying it, paying it forward. That's part of how we, how we invest in our discipline. Other times, there are all kinds of other people who would do that. And you were asked because you were there and that's not necessary work for you. And so saying maybe and having time to have a little consultation can be helpful. And then there are things you should say no to. A press interview that you are not the right person to to provide or a talk that you're less than expert in. And the other thing that you can do as you get a little older, which I've done for a long time now, is invite a mentee to provide a talk or to do something with you. And then you not only have a collaborator, but you're developing someone else. And it's it makes you proud as a parent to see them do well. That's some great advice. It's funny because historically for emergency doctors, it's either yes or no. There is no maybe. We're pretty black and white in terms of, you know. So I really like the concept of the maybe. You know, you don't have to immediately say yes or no to someone. You could say, well, maybe let me think about it. Maybe we can work something out. Maybe I can have a mentee, as you say, help out. Maybe there is a better person, et cetera. So I like that, just that general concept of maybe rather than just the straight up yes or no. Well, and when you think about that black and whiteness, when I started as a CPD dean at Dalhousie, I realized that I was a person who made decisions and I they were all yeses and nos. And a lot of the decisions I needed to make were not urgent. I was not in the trauma room and I could take my time and get more input and come up with a superior product sometimes. So I think it's a, it's a lesson to us that what works in one environment may not be transferable to every environment in your life. Running your home life with yeses and nos probably wouldn't be optimal. <laughs> Unless you have teenagers at home and then it's all yeses and nos. <laughs> no, it's all gray with the teens. <laughs> it's all maybe, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. We digress a little bit. All right. The last aspect of maintaining a successful career in EM that I'd like to talk about involves strategies for work transitions. You know, whether that's a transition to semi-retirement or a transition into starting your practice or a transition from clinical to, say, administrative or clinical to research or research to clinical, whatever that might be. What advice can you give our listeners around planning for transitions in their in their careers in general? Well, I mean, I think when you're planning transitions, you want to find something that you're really passionate about. And that can become a chunk of you want to spend your life force doing that for a chunk of your time. And so finding something you're passionate about and getting connected with the people who are in that will really ease any transition. Other people want to see you succeed. They're not all hiding behind the fence planning bad things for you. Most people really want to see you succeed and they're happy to include you and make you part of that. So having people around you to support you and to give you some guidance around that is really important. Uh, The other thing is, We expect as physicians that we're going to be able to do everything. We're going to be able to write and research and teach without any extra training. And that's just not reality. I mean, writing is some people's entire life. Their entire training and all of their work is in writing. So expecting, having that expectation of ourselves is unrealistic. And it's unrealistic for a lot of things. There may be times when we have to go and get some extra training to do it. And that may be just learn by doing, but 
we can't expect that we're just going to catapult to being great writers or to being great researchers. So being patient with yourself and saying, I'm going to need this skill and that skill and finding out from peers and people who have made those transitions can be very helpful. So transitions can be difficult. I think they're opportunities for growth. I think it's exciting. I kind of get energy by doing new things. And so, you know, when you think, when you think about it that way, I think transitions are magic. It's like a little portal into another world. Yeah, they're exciting. Absolutely. I guess it really does depend on your attitude towards transitions in the first place. You know, it as does. you say, you know, if you're excited about the transition rather than terrified of it, then you're more likely to come out on the other side with success. Well, and our attitude as emergency physicians to change is distinctly different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world likes change as long as they don't have to change. We like change as long as we're in the middle of it. And so that's pretty different. And so that makes transitions appetizing for us. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dr. LeBlanc. That was uh, an incredible variety of insightful pieces of wisdom that I think will really help people who, especially ones who might be having difficulty with transitions in their career. And can I offer up a contact for you if uh, someone would like to contact you if they're having difficulty in a transition in their career? Sure. My email is constance.leblanc, L-E-B-L-A-N-C, at dal, D-A-L, dot C-A. Thanks so much. And uh, we will definitely have you again on EM Cases if you'll oblige. Thanks for having me. I'd be happy to come back. Well, we're about out of time. Hope you learned some things about cannabis poisoning in kids, esophageal rupture, brugada patterns and syndrome, euglycemic DKA, some system issues around patients waiting to be seen, and about transitions in your EM career. In the next main episode podcast, we have the mighty return of Aaron Ciel and a radiologist from North York General Hospital when we discuss why x-rays sometimes lie to us. So until next time, take it easy. (laughs) 